haven't seen some of you since Christmas, and it's because I haven't seen some of you since Christmas. So if you're in that boat, Happy New Year and, uh, and welcome back. There's been so much snow, and, uh, and the kids the other day, they were playing in the snow, and I decided to take a picture of their boots when they came back inside, and I thought I'd share this picture with you. You can hit that first slide. Those are, those are the, it's a picture of my kids' boots. And for those of you who have no idea what you're seeing right now, uh, baby Varghese is expected in late August. We, um, we decided to grow the kingdom a little differently. And uh, just please pray for us. We're excited. We're nervous. And, uh, and we need a lot of prayer during this time. You know, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about Nehemiah. And we've been, uh, we've been challenged through the book of Nehemiah to rebuild our lives of faith and rebuild our lives of worship. And, and God has call, called us and challenged us to take courage and to recognize our unique positioning and to be prepared to use our positions for his honor, for his glory, and for his purposes. And you'll remember that this is a story of a people who come back together finding this ruined city and they decide to rebuild the walls of the city. And they begin first by rebuilding the foundations of the altar and the temple. And when they do this, it brought them to a place of repentance and it brought them to this place of turning back to God. And, and so here's this man named Nehemiah who was in this very important position as the cupbearer to the king, and his heart breaks for the condition of the city, and his heart breaks for his people, and his heart breaks for the things that break the heart of God. His heart was a heart that God was using in such a big way. And so he called all the people together and he rallied all the people. And now he was leading the people in the face of terrible opposition. And here he is casting vision for this monumental task. Right Here he is casting vision for, uh, for this task that seems unlikely, for, for this task that seems impossible in rebuilding this city that's lying in ruins. And so Nehemiah's vision wasn't just that these walls be built up, but he recognized that with the walls going up, there would be a new kind of city where faith would be the highest priority, where people would be one, and most importantly, where God would be worshipped again, and where God would be honored, and where God would be glorified. And the people, they hear the vision and they jump on board the vision and they were intent on making this vision become a reality in building this new kind of city. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5? Nehemiah chapter 5. So up to this point, we've seen the community come together as one, and they're totally in this together. They were one community of faith because they grasped the vision and they recognized what God was doing. And then last week we saw that their enemies were coming against them and they were causing issues in the rebuilding process. And so while one person was building, the other one was standing guard with a sword. And since they were all in and they were all in this thing together, while someone stood on guard and while the other person worked, 
they were able to instill fear in their enemies, and they were able to instill fear in the neighboring nations, and they realized that even though their enemies could attack them at any time because they did this thing together, and because they did this thing together to honor God, they knew that God was with them in the task. But now, as we begin chapter 5, Nehemiah faces this huge problem, right? As the, as the physical walls are being rebuilt, the community was beginning to fall apart. Rather than the city being broken down, now the community was broken down. See, what's happening here is the, the people had been experiencing this famine now. The land was in a drought, and there's very little food to go around. And anyone who had food supplies, all of a sudden they started jacking up their prices. And all of these things all of a sudden created this formula for disaster. And this is where we pick up the story in Nehemiah 5, verse 1 onwards. Now, there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. There were others who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Now we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. See, there's this uprising that begins to happen where the poor, where the down and outers felt like they're being left behind, and, and they felt being as though they were being treated with injustice, and things weren't right with the people of Israel. And the people, they were in so much debt that they began selling off their children and mortgaging off their kids. I mean, just imagine that, where you're in such dire straits that if you had three or four kids, that the only way to feed the rest would be to sell one off. And this is what's happening here. And what made it even worse was that the Hebrew people were selling off their children to slavery to other Hebrew people. And so now in one voice, they see Nehemiah, their leader, and they're saying, aren't our sons as good as their sons? Aren't our daughters as good as their daughters? And they couldn't understand how a Hebrew person could possibly do this to another. These are difficult times in Jerusalem. These are, these are tough times for the people in Jerusalem. They're dealing with this great economic problem. Um, they're dealing with some hard times, and they decided that they're going to take matters into their own hands, and now this place is just a mess. You know, it doesn't take long, especially when we hear these stories from, from Dr. Cody, it doesn't take long to realize that our world is full of injustice, isn't it? It, it doesn't take much to realize that this place we live in is broken. There is this ongoing tension with the haves and the have-nots, where the rich rule over the poor, and it seems like it's been like this all the time. 
And the state of the economy that Nehemiah is dealing with may sound like what you might be dealing with at home. There are some of you dealing with mortgages that you can't pay, right? There are loans that some of you have, and you're having such a difficult time handling these loans. There's job loss in your family, and it feels like you may need to sell off one of your kids just to survive. I want to ask you this question this morning in dealing with all of this. I mean, how do you handle those tough times in your life? How do you cope with your financial burdens? How, how do you deal with loss in your life? I mean, we can't even imagine the level of suffering and the level of grief and the level of heartache that some of these parents were feeling. How, how do you handle loss and suffering and grief in your life? When sickness comes your way, how do you handle that? I mean, do you feel like giving up on God? Do you find your own way out? Or do you put your trust in Jesus? I mean, are you putting your confidence in the one who can make a way out of no way? Are you believing in that miracle-working God? Do you believe that God is still in the business of caring for and rescuing his kids? I want to tell you that just because you ask Jesus into your heart and into your life, even though you live for him, it doesn't mean that things are going to be easy now. But the fact is, is that tough times are a part of life. When we find ourselves bearing financial burdens for the family, or we find ourselves in situations where sickness visits our home, and in New England, it snows. And when it snows in New England, it snows. And if life is good for you today, just hold on tight because tomorrow could be rough. And if most of us were really honest with ourselves, we would admit that during those hard times in our lives, sometimes we begin to question God, don't we? In our deepest, darkest hour, we say, God, where are you? Right? My husband or my wife just passed away. Why? Why weren't you there? God, I'm having such a hard time paying the rent. God, where are you? God, I feel so lonely being the only Christian in my school. Where are you? God, do you really care about my situation? God, do you really, truly care about me? I mean, we've all gone through these times in our lives, right, where we've wondered, God, where are you in my time of need? God, do you really care about the things that I'm going through? Do you really care about my debts? God, do you really care about my sickness? God, do you really care about my problems? Do you really care about the mess that I'm in right now? Do you really care about my kids who don't serve you anymore? Do you really care about this hurt and this pain and this cancer? God, don't you see what's going on with me? And if you find yourself in that boat today, I want to remind you what Jesus taught his disciples. He says this in Matthew chapter 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. 
And so Jesus is telling us that none of us are ever out of the sight of God. Nothing ever happens to us that God is unaware of. In fact, not only does he know what's happening to you, but the amazing thing is that our God cares about the situation that you're in today. So this morning I want to tell you that you matter to God much more than you can ever, ever imagine you matter to him. He's interested in who you are. He's interested in what you are going through, even down to the mundane, nitty-gritty, boring parts of your life. And so Jesus is saying to you, and he's saying to me, because God is so personally involved in your life, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And don't be anxious, because God is watching over you at all times, And in every situation, it may seem as though he's distant. It may seem as though he isn't present. But be encouraged today because Jesus is intimately involved and concerned about every aspect of the things that you're dealing with today. And you know, it's sometimes in the time of our need that we look to him the most, isn't it? Sometimes it's in the time of our pain that we lean on him the most. Sometimes it's in the time of our suffering and in our grieving that we are most comforted by him. No matter what the situation you might be facing, we need to know in our heart of hearts that Jesus' promises says that he will never leave us and he will never, ever, ever forsake us. And so this morning, if you're hurting, God is here to heal you. And if you are suffering, God is here to comfort you. And this morning, if you are in some desperate need, talk to him because he will prove himself to you to be Jehovah Jireh, your provider. Life might be complicated, it might be difficult, and it might be rough. But we need to desperately be led by God. He is here today to listen to you in your joys. He loves to hear about your acclaims. And he is here today to listen to you in your deepest pains. And he is here today to listen to you in your times of loneliness. And he is here today to listen to you in your times of need. And all you have to do is say, Jesus, I need your help. Put your trust in him today. He knows everything about you because he knows you better than you know yourself. You have nothing, nothing, nothing to lose. Second thing that I want to talk to you about this morning, you know, the people in Jerusalem are having this rough time in their lives. And, uh, and it would have been easy for some of them to say, Nehemiah, what are you thinking, Right? Why are we investing all of this time? Why are we investing all of this money? Why are we investing all of these resources into this wall when what we need is food? See, in the middle of this huge building project, uh, in the middle of all of that, uh, Nehemiah hears their need and uh, he gets really upset. He gets really angry. And let's read on in verse 6. And I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. 
and I consulted with myself and contented with the nobles and the rulers, and I said to them, You are exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held this great assembly against them. Right? The injustice that he's hearing about gets Nehemiah so angry. And, and he gets so angry and he realizes that he can't just sit around doing nothing. He's got to do something about it. And he, so he calls all of the people together and he literally demands that the rich people among them, that the powerful people among them, that these leaders would put a stop to this awful practice of abusing people in the time of their struggle and in the time of their troubles. And so I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our Lord, of our God, to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? You know, he's saying, you're worse than our surrounding nations who don't even know God. So he tells them, give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and also the interest that you're charging them. And listen to their response. Listen to what these noble, powerful people do. This is what they said. We will give it all back. And we will not demand anything more from them. Nehemiah, we will do as you say. You know, Nehemiah, he is so angry with what's going on. And he gets this group of leaders together and he says, Guys, this should never be in the community of faith. So when they get together, he demands them that they release the poor people of their obligations. He demands that they live generously and compassionately and, and that they change their ways and that they live with a heart of compassion for these people. And this is kind of hard for us to imagine. It's kind of hard for us to picture some people in their suits and ties, the, you know, CFOs and CEOs and, and, and bankers and these people with position and power just yielding to a guy who's following God. It's hard for us to picture this going on. These people who would just say, yes, we'll pay back everything and we'll even give back all of the interest that we took back. But there's this really important part of the story that you learn just after this episode. So Nehemiah has this really special kind of advantage here that other governors who had been in this place before, they never had this advantage. Nehemiah had something beyond the authority of the position that he carried as the governor. He had something that had taken him about 12 years to earn. He had something that gave him such great influence beyond his position as governor that when he faced this group of people that had taken unfair advantage of the situation, all of a sudden those people were shamed. Those people were shamed into doing the right thing and for the right for the people and for the city. And here's what we find out he had been doing all along. Verse 14. When I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. In other words, here's Nehemiah, and he has this opportunity to come in as the governor and say, hey, guys, listen, I'm going to impose this tax on you because I'm the governor and it's entitled to me. And uh, instead, when Nehemiah comes, he shows up on the scene and he decides not to do that. He decides not to put on this burden on the people. 
verse 15, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and they took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine and their assistants also lorded it over the people. In other words, all of the governors before him, they were surrounded by their goons who just went out and they leveraged their position. They abused their positions and their, and the, their authority so that they can benefit from it. Nehemiah goes on to say, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Out of reverence for God, I couldn't bring myself to doing that. You know, he does this thing not because he has to. He does this thing not because someone told him to, but out of his reverence for God. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work, and we did not acquire any land. And he told his guys, basically, we're not going to use our power and our wealth. He told his, his, his other guys who came with him, uh, who were underneath him, he said, guys, we are not going to make ourselves wealthier and more powerful. We're not going to we're not going to purchase any more land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came from surrounding nations. And every day, one ox, six sheep, some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were too heavy on these people. And he closes this section off by saying, remember me with favor for all I have done for these people. You know, in the end, it wasn't a matter of these walls being built up. It was all about his heart for his people. When Nehemiah gathered the wealthy and the powerful, here they are eyeball to eyeball with a guy who not only obeyed the law, but he went over and above. These leaders, these CFOs, these powerful bankers, all of these people, they're eyeball to eyeball with Nehemiah, who is entitled as the governor, who never took what was entitled to him. Here they are, eyeball to eyeball with Nehemiah, uh, who said, listen, I'm, I'm here to build this wall. I'm not going to allow myself or my people to be distracted by wealth and power and entitlement or by opportunity. And so these leaders were shamed into doing the right thing because they were looking at a guy whose words matched his actions. Do your words match your actions? When you're at home, do your words match your actions? In your neighborhoods and in your communities, do your words match your actions? At work or at school, do your words Match your actions. See, Nehemiah, he had this influence because Nehemiah had something that went beyond the authority of his position. Nehemiah had what we call moral authority, and it goes beyond the position that you've been given. Moral authority is simply walk your talk. It's the credibility that you earn when people look at you and they begin to say, hey, listen, I may not believe what he believes, but there's no doubt in my mind that he believes what he says he believes. 
moral authority says, I may not agree with the way he sees the world, but there is no doubt in my mind that there is consistency in the way he acts and the way that he views the world. Right? There's no hidden motive. There's no hidden agenda here. And when you're face-to-face with someone who has earned and has moral authority, it is a powerful, powerful thing. And if you're like me, when you hear the story of Nehemiah and what he had been doing for these last 12 years, you think, wow, man, this is the type of man that I want to be. Right? This, this is the type of leader that I want to be. I would love to know that my life has such moral authority, that my life has such great influence that people would take me seriously because there's no separation between what I'm asking them to do and what I would do for myself. And so I want to encourage you, those of you who are in positions of leadership who are sitting here today, and that's a whole lot of you. Some of you are managers in, in, at your workplace. Some of you are, are, are in upper management in your places of work. Some of you are our department head leaders who are sitting here this morning. Some of you, and a lot of you, your parents. And so you hold positions of authority. And I want to encourage you to stay the course. And I want to encourage you to lead with integrity. And I want to encourage you to lead with humility. And I want to encourage you to lead with grace and mercy and compassion. And don't ask things that you wouldn't attempt to do yourself. And your reward is not going to be this great promotion. And your reward isn't going to be this great raise. But your reward is going to be something even greater. It's going to be something even better. For some of you, you are earning moral authority in your places of work. Some of you, you are earning moral authority in your neighborhoods and in your communities. Some of you, you are earning moral authority in your homes because you walk your talk. And so what all of that means is this. You cannot call yourself a Christ follower and cheat on your taxes. You cannot call yourself a Christ follower and abuse your position at work. You can't call yourself a Christ follower and curse everybody out and expect that they're going to hear the truth from you. You can't call yourself a Christ follower and not care for lost, hurt, broken, and dying people. You cannot call yourself a Christ follower and mistreat your wife and your kids. You cannot call yourself a Christ follower and treat your husband and your kids without any respect. You know, if there's anything that I've learned these last few years being a dad, it's that my kids watch everything I do. They listen to everything I say, and they watch if what I say matches what I do. Remember, your kids watch what you do. They watch how you treat people. Guys, they watch how you treat your wife. Ladies, your kids watch how you treat your husbands. And if it doesn't add up, 
to what a Christ follower should look like, you will lose moral authority in your home and you risk losing your spouse and your kids to this world. And you will have no voice with them. And God cannot use you. And it doesn't mean that you have to walk around as though you're this perfect person. That's not what moral authority is all about. Moral authority says that you apologize when you make a mistake to your husband. And guys, when you make a mistake with your wife, you ask her for forgiveness. And when you're with your team members in your office place, you're the first one to say, guys, here's where I'm having a problem with. You know, I remember years ago, I, I, uh, I heard this story about this teenager who wasn't living a life becoming of a Christ follower. He would curse with the best of them. He was known to have inappropriate relationships. He mistreated other people at school. And, uh, and one day, he showed up to school wearing this, this Christian T-shirt. And, uh, and another student mustered enough courage to approach him, and he said, hey, listen, can you do me a favor? Could you not wear that T-shirt again? Because there's a small group of us who believe in what that shirt stands for. But the way you treat people isn't representative of what Jesus would do. And it would greatly help us if you just didn't wear that shirt again. You know, a couple months ago, um, we were getting some work done in our house. Uh, we needed a new front door and we needed a new patio sliding door. And if you've ever done that kind of stuff, you know how pricey that can get. And, and we were working with a contractor who, who honestly, has become like a friend of ours now. And um, as he's giving us the quotes, we said, hey, listen, let's wait till tax-free weekend and just buy everything. So a couple, maybe a week before tax-free weekend, he came to the house and he said, hey, guys, because I'm a contractor, I can't get the tax-free um, advantage. I don't get the tax-free advantage. But what they told me is I can say that you're my brother-in-law and they can give you give me the family discount. And, uh, and I remember, I just looked over at Smith, and we knew exactly what we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, it took us a while to scrape and scrimp and save for, for, to get this job done. I looked at him, I said, hey, listen, I don't want you to lie. Let's just pay the tax. And his jaw dropped. Like, why? Why would you do that? Do you know how much money you can save? And it was written all over his face. Do you know how much money you can save? Do you know no one's ever going to find out? How is anyone going to ever prove this or find out? No one cares. But the shock factor itself was worth, was worth it. And um, later on, he, he, he came by and he did the work. And um, he called me up. And I said, hey, listen, we owe you some money for the completion of the job. Because he came in, he finished the job, and we weren't home. And, uh, and he said, hey, listen, Randy, you guys have been so great through this whole thing. Let's call it a wash. Are you leading with moral authority in your life? Are you leading your families with moral authority? You know, Nehemiah, he's seen all of the other leaders, all of the other influential people. They were abusing their power, abusing their positions of authority, abusing their wealth, and, and he wasn't like that. 
And because he wasn't anything like them, and because he walked his talk, the people responded. And they realized that they're hurting their brothers, and they're hurting their sisters, and they realize that they're destroying this community of faith. And so the people come around and, and, and they come to Nehemiah and they make a promise to Nehemiah. They make a promise to the people. They make a promise to God that they would change their ways and care for one another. And Nehemiah asked the people to show compassion to others. That's all he asked them to do is he says, guys, listen, would you just show compassion to one another? I want to ask you this last question today. Are there signs of compassion in your life? I mean, would your checkbook show signs of compassion? Does your calendar show signs of compassion? If we asked your best friends to testify on your behalf, would there be evidence of compassion towards others? When you see the injustices being done to someone, what do you do? When you see other people suffering around you, what, what do you do? When you hear about the needs of others, what do you do? You know, God uses people who see the need around them and who, is, who are willing to respond to it. God uses someone who sees the injustice around the world and they say, what can I do to bring the light of Jesus to that? What can I do to bring the hope of God to the hurt of this world? You you and I, we are called to be the light of this world. We are called to be the city on a hill. We are called to have the heart of God that he can use. And the heart that God uses is one that sees the injustices of this world and does something about it because you and I are called to love people back to life. Stand together this morning. With our eyes closed, I'm just going to ask the uh, the prayer team if you would come forward. prayer team, would you make yourself available here at the front? This morning's message was, you know, there's a word of encouragement there, and there's a little teaching moment there, but I want to tell you this morning, whatever your needs are today, the Lord is here to meet you where you're at.
Oh, oh. 